Chapter 17, Part 2 of Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. Chapter 17, Wireless in Aviation, Part 2. The feature of this set is its compactness, the equal division of the sections of the installation, and the celerity with which the station may be set up and dismantled in extremely mountainous country such as the Vosges, where it is even difficult for a pack-horse to climb to commanding or suitable positions, there is still another set which has been perfected by the Marconi Company. This is the knapsack set, in which the whole set of the installation, necessarily light, small and compact is divided among four men and carried in the manner of knapsacks upon their backs although necessarily of limited radius such an installation is adequate for communication within the restricted range of aircraft greater difficulties have to be overcome in the mounting of a wireless installation upon a dirigible when the zeppelin was finally accepted by the german government the military authorities emphasized the great part which wireless telegraphy was destined to play in connection with such craft but have these anticipations been fulfilled by no means as a little reflection will suffice to prove in the first place a wireless outfit is about the most dangerous piece of equipment which could be carried by such a craft as the zeppelin unless it is exceptionally well protected as is well known, the rigidity of this type of airship is dependent upon a large and complicated network of aluminium, which constitutes the frame. Such a huge mass of metal constitutes an excellent collector of electricity from the atmosphere. It becomes charged to the maximum with electricity. In this manner, a formidable contributory source of danger to the airship is formed. In fact, this was the reason why Z.I.V. vanished suddenly in smoke and flame upon falling foul of the branches of trees during its descent. At the time the Zeppelin was a highly charged electrical machine, or battery, as it were, insulated by the surrounding air. Directly the airship touched the trees, a short circuit was established, and the resultant spark sufficed to fire the gas, which is continuously exuding from the gas bags after this accident minute calculations were made and it was ascertained that a potential difference of no less than one hundred thousand volts existed between the framework of the dirigible and the trees this tension sufficed to produce a spark four inches in length it is not surprising that the establishment of the electric equilibrium by contact with the trees which produced such a spark should fire the hydrogen inflation charge in fact the heat generated was so intense that the aluminium metallic framework was fused the measurements which were made proved that the gas was consumed within fifteen seconds and the envelope destroyed within twenty seconds as a result of this disaster endeavors were made to persuade count zeppelin to abandon the use of aluminium for the framework of his balloon but they were fruitless a result no doubt due to the fact that the inventor of the airship of this name has but a superficial knowledge of the various sciences which bear upon aeronautics and fully illustrates the truth of the old adage that a little learning is a dangerous thing 
Count Zeppelin continues to work upon his original lines, but the danger of his system of construction was not lost upon another German investigator, Professor Scheite, who forthwith embarked upon the construction of another rigid system, similar to that of Zeppelin, at Lanz. In this vessel, aluminium was completely abandoned in favor of a framework of ash and poplar. The fact that the aluminium constituted a dangerous collector of electricity rendered the installation of wireless upon the Zeppelin not only perilous but difficult. Very serious disturbances of an electrical nature were set up, with the result that wireless communication between the traveling dirigible and the ground below was rendered extremely uncertain. In fact, it has never yet been possible to communicate over distances exceeding about 150 miles. Apart from this defect, the danger of operating the wireless is obvious, and it is generally believed in technical circles that the majority of the Zeppelin disasters from fire have been directly attributable to this, especially those disasters which have occurred when the vessel has suddenly exploded before coming into contact with terrestrial obstructions. In the later vessels of this type, the wireless installation is housed in a well-insulated compartment. This insulation has been carried to an extreme degree, which indicates that at last the authorities have recognized the serious menace that wireless offers to the safety of the craft, with the result that every protective device to avoid disaster from this cause has been freely adopted. The fact that it is not possible to maintain communication over a distance exceeding some 20 miles is a severe handicap to the progressive development of wireless telegraphy in this field. It is a totally inadequate radius when the operations of the present war are borne in mind. A round journey of 200 or even more miles is considered a mere jaunt. It is a long-distance flight which counts, and which contributes to the value of an airman's observations. The general impression is that the fighting line, or zone, comprises merely two or three successive stretches of trenches and other defenses, representing a belt five miles or so in width. But this is a fallacy. The fighting zone is at least twenty miles in width. That is to say, the occupied territory in which vital movements take place represents a distance of twenty miles from the foremost line of trenches to the extreme rear and then comes the secondary zone which may be a further ten miles or more in depth consequently the airman must fly at least thirty miles in a bee-line to cover the transverse belt of the enemy's field of operations upon the german and russian sides this zone is of far greater depth ranging up to fifty miles or so in width in these circumstances the difficulties of ethereal communication twixt air and earth may be realized under the present limitations of radius from which it is possible to transmit but there are reasons still more cogent to explain why wireless telegraphy has not been used upon a more extensive scale during the present campaign wireless communication is not secretive in other words its messages may be picked up by friend and foe alike with equal facility true the messages are sent in code which may be unintelligible to the enemy in this event the opponent endeavors to render the communications undecipherable to one and all by what is known as jamming that is to say he sends out an aimless string of signals for the purpose of confusing senders and receivers and this is continued without cessation and at a rapid rate 
The result is that messages become blurred and undecipherable. But there is another danger attending the use of wireless upon the battlefield. The fact that the stations are of limited range is well known to the opposing forces, and they are equally well aware of the fact that aerial craft cannot communicate over long distances. For instance, A sends its airmen aloft, and conversation begins between the clouds and the ground. Presently, the receivers of B begin to record faint signals. They fluctuate in intensity, but within a few seconds, B gathers that an aeroplane is aloft and communicating with its base. By the aid of the field telephone, B gets into touch with his whole string of wireless stations and orders a keen lookout and a listening ear to ascertain whether they have heard the same signals. Some report that the signals are quite distinct and growing louder, while others declare that the signals are growing fainter and intermittent. In this manner, B is able to deduce in which direction the aeroplane is flying. Thus, if those to the east report that signals are growing stronger, while the stations on the west state that they are diminishing, it is obvious that the aeroplane is flying west to east, and vice versa when the west hears more plainly at the expense of the east. If, however, both should report that signals are growing stronger, then it is obvious that the aircraft is advancing directly towards them. It was this ability to deduce direction from the sound of the signals which led to the location of the Zeppelin which came down at Looneville, some months previous to the war, and which threatened to develop into a diplomatic incident of serious importance. The French wireless stations running south-east to north-west were vigilant, and the outer station on the northwest side picked up the Zeppelin's conversation. It maintained a discreet silence, but communicated by telephone to its colleagues behind. Presently, number two station came within range, followed by numbers three, four, five, six, and so on in turn. Thus, the track of the Zeppelin was dogged silently through the air by its wireless conversation as easily and as positively as if its flight had been followed by the naked eye. The Zeppelin travelers were quite ignorant of this action upon the part of the French, and were surprised when they were rounded up to learn that they had been tracked so ruthlessly. Every message which the wireless of the Zeppelin had transmitted had been received and filed by the French. Under these circumstances, it is doubtful whether wireless telegraphy between aircraft and the forces beneath will be adopted extensively during the present campaign. Of course, should some radical improvement be perfected, whereby communication may be rendered absolutely secretive, while no intimation is conveyed to the enemy that ethereal conversation is in progress, then the whole situation will be changed, and there may be remarkable developments. End of chapter 17, Wireless and Aviation, Part 2